Peace and blessings. This is Jay Carey, and I am on the chopping block at visceralchange.org. Listen to what we do. I don't have anything to say. No, wait, wait. I'm nervous. Yeah. It's your easy listening station. I'm there right now. <laughs> Why? You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. You're listening to the chopping block. The them on the Visceral Change Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to this episode of the chopping block. I am here today with, man, I can't even put it into words. <laughs> my mentor above many things, friend above that, brother above that, my man Jay Carey. It's been years trying to get yeah. this man on the chopping block. He's a busy dude doing the good work, and I'm just grateful that he's taken a couple of hours out of his day to kind of set up with me and, and chop it up with me. So before sure. anything happens, Jay, what's going on, baby? How are you doing? Peace, brother. We we in the virtual building, man. We here. We here. It's, it's so good to see you, man. It's been a long time. Yes, I've been Indeed, busy man. as you have. Um, and it, it's an honor for me to share space. I really do appreciate it. No, I appreciate you, man. Every time I I I, I catch you mm-hmm. at a distance or on social media, you're traveling the world, traveling the country, making things happen. So it's just good to see you and the beautiful family uh, making Thank it work you. even through this COVID time, man. It's a gift, brother. It's a gift, and it's a gift to see you grow and and and, and <laughs> blossom in the ways that you have as well, for sure. Always great we to out see here. You. We out here all the way. We out here, man. <laughs> uh, folks, listening, Jay Carey, man, is a licensed social worker. He's a psychotherapist, mental health clinician, and, he, and it's his own private practice. Um, he also works at Salem State University, our alma mater, dare I say. Uh, mm-hmm. um, as a mental health clinician and multicultural specialist. And so Jay is constantly doing the work and I'm really excited today, man, to talk about, talk about mental health, talk about the elements of psychology, talk about therapy and really the black community with sort of a black male focus, man. So um, I think a lot of people need to hear it. I know the listeners need to hear it. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion that is not had that I'm hoping maybe your expertise and years of experience to kind of fill in some of those gaps for us. As we tackle it, man. I'm ready to uh, so let's jump right in. Yeah. Let's, let's do, do it, it, baby. Do it. Before we even get to the content, man. Sure. Born and raised in Albany, Jay? Born and raised in Albany, New York. The 518. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Man, talk to us a little bit about young Jay Carey. A, so, a couple of things. Talk to us yeah. about your time in Albany, but I also want you to specifically highlight what it was like growing up as a biracial, light-skinned, young black kid in yep. that time, in that environment. Wow. Yeah, where to start, where to start. So Albany is, is an interesting place in the sense of, I believe that it's it's roughly, I'd say almost 30%, um, you know, black culture, black people. Um, and uh, so, and, and I think almost 50% white um folks folks who identify as white and then there's another aggregate of kind of other cultures other other races if you will mm-hmm. um it's a challenge in space i mean it's interesting in that albany i believe uh has or at least had at least in the, the 70s 80s and 90s like almost like a race wealth gradient to some degree right and mm-hmm. so like certain communities you're going to see certain types of people um, and oftentimes certain resources are attributed to those communities, which is quite different than other communities. So, right. you know, where I, where I lived, um, I started off in much more of a kind of an urban community, so to speak, um, densely populated, you know, very high crime rate. There's a lot of violence. 
Um, a lot of drugs. Again, I grew up in the eighties and nineties in upstate New York. It's about an hour away from the city. So like, you know, we got it popping up there for sure. Um, <laughs> for sure. And, um, so I was born in 79, came up through the eighties, a lot of challenges. I would dare to say that one of my kind of primary, um, you know, kind of growth points or like, um, difficulties, I guess I could say, um, was struggling with some domestic violence. So, mm. you know, my mother, a uh, white woman from Slingerlands, which is a suburb in New York, outside of Albany, very homogenous, very affluent community. Um, mom's very gracious. She's a middle child. So she had a little rebel in her, a little radical in her. Um, my mother also has lots and lots of soul. And so uh, she, you know, always I'm waking up to Ray Charles and Dobie Gray and Marvin Gaye. Hey. Stevie Wonder every single day for like, you know, uh -huh. 15 years. Um, and my mother has a lot of rhythm. She has a lot of soul, very kind woman. Unfortunately, my biological father struggled with his own addiction, struggled with his own past, had a lot of his own traumatic history um, mm. and shaped us through the lens of some domestic violence related stuff. Um, there reached a point when I was very, very young, where my mother basically had to take my sister and I and whatever she could carry and just kind of start a new life. Um, and so we became what I would identify as relatively transient and not feeling like we had roots in any specific location, mm -hmm. kind of bouncing around a little bit. I spent a lot of time at my grandmother's house, who was also kind of a, a pillar, if you will. Um, but, you know, you talked about, you know, the biracial identity, marginalized identity, very much yeah. feeling stuck in the middle. Um, mm -hmm. My brother, Austin Ash, referenced the um, this idea of dual citizenship when I was listening to yeah. Chopping block. Shout out to oh, shout yeah. out to shout out Austin. to Austin. Yes. Um, referencing this idea of dual citizenship, which to me really was a very salient point for me and my upbringing as well. Yeah. Um, feeling connected to different uh, groups and aggregates of people based on my levels of safety, levels of exposure. For example, um, elementary school, uh, predominantly white school, I would say at least over 90%, if not more. Um, you know, one or two black or brown folks per class. Um, and I learned very quickly in that space to associate, you know, social capital. And this may not saying this is healthy because it's not as a kid. You know, sometimes we experience things. My mm. perspective was um, that there was a there was some type of power connected to whiteness. Right. Uh. In the sense of access yes. to resources in the sense of, you know, when when I got in trouble, there were some things that would go down. Um, and sometimes my white counterparts or white classmates weren't necessarily kind of subject to that same degree of punishment. Um, mm -hmm. For example, I had a teacher who was a very nice woman, you know, to do, you know, well-intended, I'm sure, I hope. Um, when I would get in trouble in the class, she would say, step into my office, take me out to the hallway, and she would um, ask me to wash the walls, right? And so, oh. like... Mind you, one of maybe two African-American kids in the class. I don't remember any white kids washing walls. Oh, so, you know, those not. types of things sent me messages to presume that there might have been something sure. associated with of course. Kind of how I looked and the ways in which I was treated. Um, middle school, very different, predominantly black school, public school, a um, lot of violence. We, you know, fighting every day. We had this thing in, in middle school called floor wars. 
And if your homeroom was on the second floor, for example, but you had a class on the third floor, when you went up to three, you got to watch your back because you're about to get, you might get some hands and some feet. And so people used to literally run to class back in the day. (laughs) It was, it was wild. It was a wild, wild time. Um, Uh. In truth, high school was more so it was a bit more neutral, not necessarily as violent. Um, also noticing a racial disparity in truth. A um, lot of uh, violence in, in certain circles and certain pockets. Um, and it was interesting when I was very young, being biracial, you know, you feel marginalized, you feel kind of stuck. And you might go through certain periods where um, you might identify with one side or the other a bit more on, on occasion. When I was very young, because, you know, my mother was associated to a place of safety. This is just by mm-hmm. chance. There's, there's no there's no tact or significance to this at all. In fact, it's sad for me to say. But mm-hmm. um, I was getting some, my nurturing and my caretaking came from my mother, who was white. And my biological father was a black man, um, large black man, dark-skinned black man, and also was responsible for a lot of violence, a lot of mm-hmm. uh, danger. And every time he came around, it was a problem. And so oh, right. in my psyche, you know, especially I didn't grow up around my father at all. And so I didn't, I forgot what he looked like. And so sure. every time I would see a large black man, when I was a young kid, I was afraid right. that it was him and I was afraid that he was going to hurt us. That connection. Right. Powerful, and very sad, Crazy. But, yep. but meaningful stuff. And yep. so when I was in elementary school, I associated myself to trying to feel like I could identify with whiteness, although I could never pass. Sure. I could still feel like the more I could have, or could affiliate with a sense of whiteness, the safer safer I would be. Right. Just because of the, this, this, the exposure and experience I was having. Whereas in middle school, it was completely opposite. Sure. I identified then with social capital and blackness because I felt safer because yep. not only was it predominantly black, but if you could identify with that level of blackness, I got away with things more so because I was black amongst the students. Uh, almost like the there was a book Charlemagne came up with a couple of years back called Black Privilege. Uh, and it almost sounds like it's grounded in that narrative where it's where where black identity in this context may be the majority, chances yes. are that that identity also has the privilege. Mm, and there is a context and it's, and it's, there's lots of limitations on that context, yep. but it's, it happens. Um, and so again, because, you know, the students, middle school, a lot of fights, students have a lot of power. There's a lot of places where there aren't teachers or staff. And, you know, I had white friends that were getting beat up just because they had the same shirt as somebody else. You know, I had white oh, friends that were getting beat up often just because they were white. Um, yep. Not knowing that systemically, you know, outside of the school, there was actually a lot of privilege connected to their experience um, that they weren't necessarily aware of. And mm-hmm. um, also not knowing and understanding that um, oftentimes, you know, the under-resourced and the underrepresentation and the lack of privilege and power amongst the black students created yep. that like, like a trauma response, created yep. a reaction, right? Like this is all systemic. I mean, you, you know, you know better than I do. Um, so by the time I got to high school, things neutralized a bit. Um, but the focus at that point was more on like manhood and then ideas yeah. and concepts of like, you know, toxic masculinity came in. Yeah. And yeah. And identifying, you know, um, you know, sexual attraction to, uh, to other people right. sort of thing became uh, prominent. And then when I got to college, 
and this this will be kind of the end of the story unless you want me to expand on anything. Um, when I got to college, I came to, I went to a couple of different schools. I went to a community college in upstate New York, and then I went to school very mm -hmm. briefly in Florida. And then I ultimately ended up coming to Salem State, right, our alma mater. And when uh -huh. I did that, the first day I showed up, um, I walked into my uncle's house in Marblehead. My, my uncle is like one of the few black men that lives in Marblehead, very affluent community, 2% uh -huh. of the country. Oh, and yeah. I showed up that day and I walked in. He left the door unlocked because in Marblehead, everybody leaves the doors unlocked. And I, yep. uh, I opened up a newspaper. He left a newspaper on the, the, the dining room table and I opened up the newspaper and I'm reading the newspaper. And then all of a sudden, literally probably a minute and a half later, the front door flies open, cop comes in, police officer comes in, guns drawn, and the guns pointed Ooh. at my head, guns pointed at oh, my chest. No. Right? And he's yelling, you know, who, who are you? You know, what's your name? And I was like, Jay Carey. And he was like, what is your name? And I was like, Jay Carey. And he he yelled that four or five times. And I noticed, number one, my own anxiety levels going through the roof. Because I was of like, course. Rap for me. Back door flies open. Police gun drawn from the back. So now they got both doors open. This is my first day in Massachusetts. Now, mind you. Wow. Young kid. I was just I was just turned 20. Um, you know, I had a, a long silver chain and tattoos and, you know, a, a tank top and had a do rag on. I definitely was yeah. not from Marblehead. Um, sure. But that was the type of that was my introduction to Massachusetts. I almost turned around. Wow. And yeah. Yes, of course. Um, Who wouldn't? And what brought you to Mass? School. This with school. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Sound. I yep. was ready to honestly kind of like. So when I left Massachusetts, uh, not excuse me, when I left upstate New York, you know. A lot of difficulty. I was socialized in a place of of, of conflict yeah. and confrontation and in some yeah. degree of violence, um, and I was trying to hopefully escape some of that. I, at that point, I had a young child. Uh, my daughter Jada was um, a year old when I moved out, um, so I had a, I had a child at eighteen. Um, at this point, she was almost two years old, and I moved uh -huh. to Massachusetts to try to create a space to break the cycle of inadequate right. fatherhood by having yeah. to leave so that I can go and acquire the tools so that's that right. by the time she was old enough, she would realize I was not the stereotypical dad. that was just kind of like, that's it. The loop. So that's it. Man, yeah. yo, that's that. No, go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to, I mean, that's in a, in a nutshell, that was the, the kind of the, you know, the, the essence of the experience. Yeah. Um, a lot of conflict, had some great times and great moments. And oftentimes, as you know, sometimes the, tra the trauma and the darkness can overshadow some of the good stuff. No doubt. So no I don't doubt. mean to do that. I had some love for sure. My mother was very loving. My stepfather was very loving. My stepfather was around my entire life um, since I was in diapers. And so he, I attribute as my, my real father. Um, and he has an interesting story too, because I mean, he's one of 10 kids. He was born in Brooklyn, but raised in uh, downtown Albany, which is almost all black. And he's a white guy. Mm -hmm. um, also had a duty to protect in his family, you know, grew up, went into the service. He was an army guy. Um, yep. And there were moments in terms of race where, um, you know, cars driving by, I'm taking a tennis ball out of the street. White guy drives by and, you know, yells out the N word. Mm. Um, and, you know, my father, uh, my stepfather, who was my father would, get so infuriated that like I, I remember him chasing cars through red lights um, because wow. he was so upset that he was willing to literally die to protect me and my sister or my sister. That's and I. It. Yeah. Like all the time. 
Yeah. So it's it's amazing how, and not that this wouldn't be the case for your dad, but it's amazing how when we it's amazing the level to which we are willing to advocate for yes. an identity that we don't own when we yes. have a direct relationship to it. You know Thank what I mean? You. In Thank this you. case, father son really father, changes son. the dynamic and and the extent to which I'm willing to to put put it on the line for you. Mm-hmm. And you know the story you shared, man, powerful because there's so many other young black boys who have experienced it or are experiencing it now. And one thing that really sticks with me that I hope folks leave with, in addition to everything else you said, is that you got to a place where you were able to take it upon yourself to acknowledge your circumstance and then have the foresight to see where that could take you negatively. And that you made the call to say, let me get out of here to, as you said, break the cycle. Yes, your daughter's in the scene. That's a huge uh, impetus to, to have her see that I'm not the stereotypical black dad that Huge. people have seen and maybe that you have experienced in your own right. But to, yeah. to, to, to know that if, if, if positioned appropriately, mm-hmm. or if even taking a second to reflect, you can make that call now, uh, yeah. if you're dealing with some of these challenges. So any of my young black and brown boys listening, you know, know that there's the space is still there for you. Absolutely. Uh, so Jay, man, you found yourself in Massachusetts at Salem state. Now you mentioned some of the, some of the glory, which I know all too well, and I'm hoping the listeners will, will, will come to learn as we engage today. One thing about you is you have a bachelor's in criminal justice administration. That's right. And you also got two master's degrees, one That's of right. which in education, one in social work. Now, those are three very different disciplines. Now, switching your discipline from your, your bachelor's to your master's, I get, I did the same thing. Most yeah. people tend to do that. But then you switched again, and although there's overlap, as we know, in education and social work, they are different disciplines. So you switched again to, to social work. Take us back to that time, man, uh, and share with us where you were mentally, if it's appropriate. But I'm interested in knowing what you were thinking as far as careers went as you were trying to figure out what it meant to 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 pick a, a major, to, to identify your degree, and then how to set yourself up moving forward from there. That's right. So what we're doing now, just to, just to clarify, is we're going from working in higher ed into getting a social work degree. If, yes, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll be able to, to share your thought process on, yeah. let me get this criminal justice degree. And then wow. years later, well, actually, let me do higher ed. And then, well, actually, let me do social work. Just kind of that, that journey and what you were thinking. I mean, so that's a, that's a fantastic question. And, and the reason why I say that is because... Um, when you reference like <clears throat> criminal justice, education, and social work are quite, quite different fields, at least in terms of the direction, sure. That's they right. all could be identified as technically like human services, so to speak. Correct. You know, in one field, we may look at, um, you know, our kind of quote unquote customer as, you know, an, an offender or a client or a defendant. Yeah. Right. You take yeah. that same person and through the lens of education, now that can be, you know, student, so to speak. Right. right. Take that, the point. That same person and shift the lens to social yep. work. And now you're looking at client. And so, like, it's an interesting um, kind of series of backgrounds that all can be working with the exact same person, just from different dimensions. Um, yes. Initially, when I decided on criminal justice, to be completely honest, um, I started school at 18 um, in community college. Around that time, I also met my biological father. 
Um, I reconnected with him after probably, you know, 17 years since I've seen him prior with maybe wow. some very brief exceptions that were like less than 30 minutes at a time. And um, I decided to choose criminal justice for two reasons. Number one, I did not want to find myself in the same cycles that I, that I knew around my biological father. Um, yeah. In and out of prison, struggled with some serious addiction, including, you know, cocaine, crack, sales and use. And so mm -hmm. um, I did not want to fall into that cycle. And I learned relatively early on that oftentimes, as much as we try not to, sometimes we end up kind of gravitating or almost kind of repeating some cycles from our parents. Yes, so that was, that yes. was one reason. <clears throat> the other reason was because I just had a young child, I did not want to. Um, kind of, again, repeat those cycles. And so I was mm -hmm. like, I need to do something. And I wanted to learn how to stay out of jail, to be completely honest. Um, right. So many of the men around me, um, my older brothers, um, you know, just from kind of experience and, you know, uncles and uh, even parents were so caught up in that cycle of criminality and or incarceration um, that I was yeah. looking to break that cycle. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to pick criminal justice and not for nothing. Um, aside from that, I didn't, I'm, I don't have a skill set. I don't have an interest or a passion in so many other areas, to be honest. Like mm. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a you know tech buff. Um, I'm not a mathematician. I don't love business. I can hustle, but I don't like, you know, I don't love it. Um, That's right. Criminal justice felt like something I could gravitate towards because it gave me a chance to uproot a cycle and it gave me a chance to inform myself to avoid certain things where I think, you know, plagued a lot of the, the young people that, that looked and had experiences like I did. So sure. chose criminal justice. You know, at first I got an associate, then I transferred to Salem, got a bachelor's degree in criminal justice administration, which is kind of more leadership related stuff. As I was mm -hmm. doing that, I was also involved to some degree as a student leader. And so part of that was me meeting with a number of different folks in the law enforcement kind of area. And as I did that, in truth, I realized that may not necessarily be the best use of my skill set. Um, and they all kind of um, encouraged me to continue to go on and get a master's degree. They said, Jay, look, you know, if you go and get a master's, you're going to get this much percent more on your salary and not for nothing. Being young and brown, it's it's a way it's it's a way that you can really slide in smooth. That's right. So I then, you know, I and I had to get a, a degree in either criminal justice education or social work. And so I chose criminal justice because, no, excuse me, I chose education at that point um, mm. because number one, as soon as I graduated with a degree in criminal justice, um, I was offered a job opportunity. Um, and I didn't really want to leave the campus because I, you know, Salem State really did nurture and cultivate my success in really powerful, beautiful And I got to say- Doesn't it do that, yo? <laughs> a lot of love. And so- yeah, man. I uh, was offered an opportunity. I took the opportunity. Now I'm working in higher ed. The degree in higher ed made a lot of sense. Also, because one of my mentors, Dr. Lee Brassois, um, yep. shout out just, to Lee. Shout out to Lee. He founded and wrote the curriculum for this this master's program. And he called yes. me into his office personally and was like, "Jay, I'm writing this curriculum. It's going through its kind of approval process now. My hope is to launch it soon. You should think about it." And so it was just kind of a natural progression. That's right. So I pursued the degree in higher ed, got that in a couple of years, graduated in 2006. Now, the more interesting part comes 
as I started to emerge as a higher education professional, I found that the essence of my work, what I love the most and what gave me the most amount of purpose was working with students that I could help them break through issues yeah. outside of the classroom. And, and that in essence was directly connected to their mental health, right? Yeah. Like I had students that would come in and they were dealing with bad breakups or old domestic violence issues themselves, or they were struggling yeah. with substance use or they were, they've never been socialized around how to do school, right? Like right. they didn't know how to study. They didn't understand, um, you know, how to structure themselves and have these kind of administrative tools, keeping that academic integrity. And right. I, I love that. And then once I was able to really cultivate that space for them and then receiving some love and getting flowers back metaphorically from those students, I was like, wow, like I love to help these students break through sometimes even more than I help, I like to, to help complete their application. You know, so mm, I was in, I was in right. admissions. the last eight years of my career, I was in admissions, graduate yep. admissions specifically. And so yep. ironically, I'm big on listening to the universe. And ironically, I was recruiting for social work programs, psychology master's programs, nursing programs, education programs, all these programs. And it gave me a firsthand view on what exactly I wanted to do next. Yes. Like, you know what? I love the purpose. I love to connect with people. I love the idea of helping people break through and reach the, 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 the kind of step into their greatness. Right. And, yeah. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and, and come and, and love them into being if, 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 if I could quote Mr. Rogers of all people, right. <laughs> so, um, because I love that so much. Um, I also had a friend who was also biracial. He was also a HESA grad, um, who was struggling with, with, very intense mental health and ended up, you know, kind of taking his own, right? Uh, that was in 2009. And that also helped me kind of as a springboard. And it sparked my thought to say, I want to be part of the solution. On a deeper level, I wanted to focus specifically on mental health related issues. And social work at the master's level seemed to be the most versatile way to do that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and a licensed independent clinical social worker gets quite a bit of respect in the industry because mm -hmm. of the versatility. Um, and I can still do therapy. So I have, I'm in my practice now, I'm, I have a private practice and I'm working at Salem State and now I'm teaching one class in social work and it's just, it's been lovely. It's been lovely. Teaching a class. Teaching one class in the, in hey. the school of social work. Yeah, it's just one. And it's, it's a field placement class. So it's very low hanging fruit. It's, it's easy. We'll take it. Yeah, oh, we'll we'll take it. It. <laughs> I mean, that's that's another opportunity for the world to hear Jay Carey I mean, um, and, and for you to kind of pass that message. That's that's incredible, man. And, you know, myself and back in season two, I asked Damien D. Lane, shout out to D. Lane, Dr. something very similar, you know, coming from operations into res ed into multicultural yeah. affairs, yes. you know, and. You know, I, you know, my bachelor's degree is in, uh, I had two, one in American studies, one in juvenile justice. I always wanted to get into the law world. Um, and then I went to a different school where they didn't have a law, to, you know, major. So I'm like, well, I'll do yeah. journalism and history. And I know what I was doing, man. I was playing hoop. That was really the, the main focus, but you know, and then <laughs> main one focus thing that I got two bachelors. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah. But you know, I squeezed them out, fam. I don't, I don't want to pretend like, like it was uh, in the cards for me. I, I squeezed them out. I I I graduated high school mm. with a two point one GPA. I was at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. And then I got gotcha. to. I was on academic probation when I was an undergrad, just yeah. to be a student employee. So when by the time I got to you at Salem State, 
Yep. Gosh, almost 10 years ago at this point, man. By the Try time I got to you, I, I for, it was like, I'm going to do this one for me. Like This one's yeah. for me. Like I, yeah. I know what I'm capable of, and I'm not about to be a stat in this way either. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's when... Uh, we'll get to that in a second when when Mr. J. Carey changed my entire life. We'll talk on that in, in, in a little bit. But uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, you mentioned that you're teaching a class at Salem State, and you mentioned earlier that you also um, work there uh, as well. Yeah. Uh, that, that experience you mentioned in admissions from years ago, mm-hmm. does that at all inform the ways in which you work with the students today? Um, do you have a, a sense of understanding because you had a chance to work as a professional in higher ed? And how does that how does that assist in your work at Salem State uh, today? Great point. Great question. So my first thought related to admission specifically, because um, I, I worked in other spaces as well. But um, mm-hmm. and I referenced admission. So thank you for that, because I was there the longest. My work in admission specifically helped me to, to inform myself around the idea of like vocational counseling. So okay. when it's, when, it, when someone's coming to me and, um, you know, higher ed, for example, is on their radar or it's a goal for them, it then becomes a very easy transition because I'm familiar with the programs. I'm familiar with the yeah. admissions process. I'm familiar with the timelines and deadlines. I'm familiar yeah. with what they're looking for. I'm familiar with the value of a personal statement, for example. I'm familiar with the, the, the impact that undergraduate grade point averages have on determining yeah. a candidate, you know, can, one's candidacy at, at the graduate level. So right. through a lens of the kind of vocational counseling, I'm able to help people prepare for their next step if education is that. Um, yes. So that's real. Um, there was a number of other things that I learned kind of indirectly from working in higher ed, including kind of through that, you know, if I'm putting back on this kind of th- this lens of my own racial experience, the importance of um, representation of people in power and how important it is to see people in uh, executive level positions as a student, yeah, man. even as a professional. Um, right. Critically important for me to be able to look up to the people that were on, you know, kind of with me that may have come before me, um, particularly yep. those of black and brown complexion, because it yes. allowed me the possibility and it gave me the hope to believe that I could do it too. Yes. And so yes. that was absolutely critical. And now yes. if I look that back to the work that I'm doing with clients, um, there is something that happens with all things education that I worked with. Um, students from high school all the way up into graduate school. Because right now, even mm-hmm. I have I have students in high school that I'm working with um, through mental health counseling up into grad school. And yep. in all cases, I, I continue to come back to the idea and the reality that there is a truth that exists even outside of the classroom in terms of the benefit and the value of what we get from higher ed. Now, Mm. Education in general, if I was to kind of indirectly quote Malcolm X, right, it's, you know, it's, it can cure the cancer of racism and a number of other isms. Education sure. can set us free in, in different ways, of course, yes. because of exposure and information and understanding. Now, yeah. I often tell, particularly my younger students, that um, what we learn from school, even more so sometimes than subject matter, is a degree of discipline that we would not be introduced to without it. And if someone can motivate themselves enough to sharpen tools and skills towards something they're not necessarily even interested in or passionate about beginning in high school, 
Um, What then happens when they take those same tools and apply it towards something that they love? Right. They become unstoppable. Unstoppable. When I was working with so many young students that were like, look, I hate school. They brilliant kids, brilliant young people. I hate school. I'm not rocking with school. They're just trying to train me. They're trying to brainwash me. They're putting these limitations on. And I get that. I honor that. I appreciate that. And socializing oneself toward doing something every day, because we are what we do over time, right? This this degree of delayed gratification is now we're getting a little bit into kind of more psychological stuff, but like delayed gratification has an extreme amount of value that instant gratification just can't provide. Yes. So many of us can be great for a week. Right. But can we, your point, can we take 10 years to finish something and end up finishing two somethings while being, you know, recognized on state and national levels playing basketball? Right. So, like, I mean, I'm just, I'm, you know, just putting it into some practical terms. (laughs) We can do things in a day. We all can have good days, but can we have a good month? Can we have good years? Not to say there won't be bumps and bruises along the way. Of course. Can we fall down seven times and get up eight? And school, if nothing else, teaches us that discipline. Sometimes that our home life might not teach us. That's right. Particularly a lot of these kids with working parents. And if the parents are out of the house, all, all love and praise and respect due to the parents that are doing the absolute best that they can. And sometimes young people aren't necessarily introduced to that level of discipline, but school can do that. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that it's powerful because you talked about representation earlier. And I remember when I went to Wheelock college this time, yeah. this side now, yeah. and I, um, uh, one thing they were known for among a few other things, very, very, very small school. We're talking when I first got there, 600 students period or something in that ballpark. Um, it's since been purchased by Boston university down here now. Uh, one thing about Wheelock is that they had the most faculty of color in New England. And it was very clear. And it was clear within the academics. I remember taking uh, social studies or the equivalent a history class with uh, Dr. Joyce Hope Scott. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a standard history class that we took back in the day. It was, you know, you had to look at Malcolm X, you mentioned, uh, Dr. King, uh, uh, Sojourner Truth, yeah. uh, Nikki Giovanni. I mean, it, yes. we weren't looking at at traditional whitened history, and this was the history class. And so uh, you talked about having folks in positions of power. I'm a firm believer that that very much reflects the behaviors we see next, you know, uh, so from a systemic perspective as a, as a system-centered researcher. Mm-hmm. One thing we learn is that behavior is very much a product of its design. Uh, and so if there is a design in place that allows a behavior to exist, that behavior is going to exist. Thank you. If there is a different kind of design in place, that different behavior shows up. You know, a quick example is, you know, capitalism can work in a democracy because that design supports that behavior. Right? But mm. capitalism can't work in a dictatorship. That, that design doesn't support that behavior. Uh, and so you talk about the kids coming to you, you know, uh, I hate school, school this, school that. Is yep. it school or is it the structure of it, the design? Yes. Uh, you're coming from a troubled space. Are you troubled or was the environment one in which that troubled you? Exactly. And how can I take you into this space? Yo, uh, man, mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit more about this rep- representation and, yep. and the work, right? And as you switched into it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure you know these numbers, but I'm going to let them fly anyway. 
Okay, please. So we know that the United States is about 13% black, generally, 134 maybe on its best year, 14%, but 13% black in general. Yep. And the psychology workforce, which is where you operate, as, as it's aptly titled, right? the APA produced a study recently, uh, as, as recent as 2020, that found yep. that the percentage of black therapists sits around 4.24%. Mm. Percentage of black therapists in the U.S., about 4.24% or just 4% in general yep. compared to the 84% white therapists that we see mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Now, now here's the kicker mm-hmm. of that 4.24%. Yep. Over three, three fourths of them are black women, which means black men represent less than 25% of 4%. 4%. So I want to be clear here, right. not of a hundred of 4% black male therapists represent less than 25%. Jay, talk to us, man. What does that statistic say to you? And you talked about informing your work. How at all does that inform your work? Is that representative of of the clients you see, of the need for it in the community? Talk to me about those numbers and what that means to you. So, wow, I'm blown away even to hear that again. And and I think somewhere I might have heard it, but to hear it every time I hear that, it's a shock to me. Wow. And it shouldn't be in truth because I, I have eyes and when they're open, I can see that myself. So one of the first things it tells me is it speaks to the need um, for for men of color to enter this field Um, because there is a a need would be an understatement. It would be a stark understatement. Mm. It also speaks to like you referenced around how, um, you know, one's circumstances emerge from the design that's in place. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, you know, part of, that demographic is reflective of a design that is um, not 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 necessarily flawed, but very much um, you know designed in favor of of certain demographics. Yeah, um, skewed in the direction. Yeah, of, exactly. Um, I worked in when I first started as a full time therapist in 2017. I entered uh, Lynn Community Health Center, um, and. When I was there, I mean, without getting into specific detail, there were over 100 therapists. I, I want to say over 120 or even 130, but um, it was a large, there was a large number of therapists, and I was the only black male or even brown male, well, black male therapist, let me say mm-hmm. that. I think there were mm-hmm. a few Latino um, therapists that were there. When I came, and then by the time I left, there may have just been one or two. Um, but in terms of like black or African-American identifying therapists uh, yep. and male, they were just me. I don't think there were any African-American women therapists there at all. Interesting. In, in Lynn, Massachusetts. Yeah. Now, mind you, in Lynn, Massachusetts, you know, not to provide this is an anecdotal kind of um, description, but I know that they spoke over 150 languages in this in this health center. Oh, yeah. Right. And so. Lynn's diverse. <laughs> Very diverse, very, very diverse. It was very much a melting pot in the sense. And Lynn Community Health Center, being that it was based in the community, it was on Union Street. So it was in the middle of the right. valley. It was where yes. people are. Um, yep. And I would still dare to say that, you know, to your point, over 70, if not over 80 percent, you know, were were white women as, as therapists, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think is, is amazing to have any support in that sense. And reflective identity very much matters. And so I then became valued, not because I was good, 
but because of my demographic, because mm. people were looking for a male therapist and a black yes. or brown male therapist. That's right. That alone um, makes business very, very good for me. And it's not, I'm not proud of it. Um, and so mm. like, you know, there's always a line, there's always a list. There's always people who are reaching out to seek male therapists, particularly for like, for oftentimes for young male clients. Um, yeah most often, but also like, um, I was connected to the diversion program. There was a juvenile diversion program in Lynn where, um, in order for, uh, young students, particularly male students to avoid a criminal charge, if they did something small, let's say they stole a bike, they would then, um, rather than get arrested and get kind of pulled into the system, they would get referred, um, to a number of supports in the community, me being one of those supports and I would meet with them excuse me, however long I would need to. And then soon after that, I could give them a letter and then they can go and advocate in court and then they could discontinue. Um, in almost all of those cases, every single one of the, the people that I was referred to from the diversion program are still on my caseload today. Mm. And it, it, spoke, it spoke to the need. Mm. Right? Like in reality, For this sure. was mandatory. They had to come to therapy. Right. Years after they their case was completely closed, they are still, still here, and because it was important, and so it also yeah. speaks to you know criminality or how pe- these some of these young people are ended up catching charges because, like you said, if the design is flawed, yep, the the byproduct of that design is going to show. Yes, and, and then, yes, and in fact, when young well, when people in general have opportunities to heal and we can unpack that too like why you know oftentimes in bipoc communities we find that you know um there's a stigma um related to mental health that's actually one of my next questions so take take us right there go right forward so when it comes to that stigma um oftentimes young people in particular are more um the design pushes them more toward criminality in some cases because of yep. lack of resources, because mm-hmm. of an opportunity to, to get a job or mm-hmm. to be kind of exposed to, you know, a, a resourced type of, of, of funding stream. Um, they're oftentimes kind of guided more in the direction of criminality than they might be toward healing and then identifying tools and skills that they can acquire because innately they already have them there. They just need yep. somebody to point at them and say, no, it's right there. We got to practice this. We do a little bit of that. And yes, you are, you know, and back to loving them into being. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Take, that. take the mask off of the imposter syndrome. How do we That's uproot right. that? Um, so when we talk about stigma, culturally speaking, we know that oftentimes um, seeking mental health support is associated with frailty. Yes, yes. Um, when in truth, uh especially now nowadays is more and so more and more becoming you know a reality that uh seeking mental health support is is a sign of courage and we're trying to yeah. make that, that transition um, that's right but if we go back um to you know earlier kind of cultural uh you know histories where families who had someone who uh, had a clear and evident mental health issue um those families were then kind of like you know, shunned or, or, you know, kind of, um, you know, just misidentified or they were, um, kind of not excommunicated, but for lack of a better term uh, at times, if one had a clear and present mental health issue because of the stereotype, uh, Mm -hmm. their social status was kind of like demoted in a sense. Sure. 
Yeah, wow. Wild. Um, and we also know there's a number of historical stigmas around treatment. You know, when we think of things like, you know, the Tuskegee experiment, right? Yes. Mental oh, yeah. health have Lots. a very, very strong bridge. Um, and so it's, it's critically important for us to identify with how historically treatment oftentimes became something that was unsafe. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. Uh, we bring it now into the into the present day and like currently although i feel like you know number one mental health is now a premier industry if it wasn't before the pandemic it absolutely is now mm -hmm. um, i heard something on a on a podcast recently that said and this is anecdotal so i, I don't know but they said something around 2.8 more million people sought therapy from 2020 into 2021 and I'm presuming that this year is going to be even larger. Um, wow. in, in my office in particular, um, at Salem State, uh, last year, we've doubled the numbers that we had from this time last year. Something else wow. that's interesting through the lens of, of kind of race is um, we have had an influx of black and brown students in our office. Sure. Wow. Almost, almost tipping the scales. Like they're almost wow. predominant, which my hope and that to me, that does not speak to the need necessarily, even though I guess it kind of does as I'm thinking about uh -huh. it. I hope that it speaks to the normalizing of truth sure. because sure. there's been a lot of that recently from podcast yeah. presentations to, you know, different athletes and celebrities, people of different social statuses announcing how important it is. And so it seems like black and brown communities are not given permission to start to seek therapy, which is wonderful to see. Please forgive me. And no, 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 no. I, I, and so what is, uh, what is, uh, therapy? What is mental health assistance? Is it for, for folks listening, for folks trying to figure it out? And just as a general point of, of conversation, yeah. let me, let me back up. Let me try to, let me try to find a way to frame it. A piece of what I gleaned from what you said in the, in yeah. the information you provided yeah. was much like visiting a dentist, we tend to wait until the problem shows up and then we're like, Oh, this is actually important. And as we think about mental health, oftentimes we wait until the, something happens like the pandemic. Then we're like, Oh wait, we should probably take this seriously. This mm -hmm. isn't random. This has always been here. Right. Understanding that when I ask what is mental health uh, mm -hmm. assistance, what is therapy? Is it, I'm not quite sure how to, troubleshoot my computer and I'm upset about it, mm -hmm. I need therapy, or is it always something deeper? I mean, give me your thoughts, Jay, on, mm -hmm. um, uh, is there, is there ever a time where yeah. someone says, no, you don't need therapy for that. And that's actually relevant or is it very subjective? It's a loaded question. I'm, I apologize, but you see where I'm going. I think. Powerful, absolutely powerful question. Um, complicated response. <laughs> so, <laughs> here, I'll do the best I can. Here we go. So the first thing is, I mean, the, the response is all the above. Many people come into therapy for many different reasons. Sometimes they come in to assess whether or not they even need therapy. Okay. Right? Want to assess, enough. you know, the degree to which I even have trauma. I hear about this trauma all the time. People are talking about trauma. Do I, in fact, have trauma? Is that, in fact, affecting me? And how severe is that that uh, impact on my day-to-day -day functioning? Got it. Um, okay. Some people come in because they know they have clear and present issues they need to work through. 
Um, they might have had a, a recent or a past traumatic experience, or they might be actively struggling with a substance use problem, or they could, in fact, be noticing that their anxiety is starting to limit their day-to-day -day kind of functioning or they have noticed that there's a number of symptoms that might or might not fit under kind of a depressive diagnosis and they want to assess how real it is and what that looks like. So oftentimes people come in to be assessed. Some people come in with more of a clear picture. And then sometimes people come in without problems, but there's this degree of like positive psychology where it's less about bringing someone from, you know, metaphorically speaking, numerically speaking, a negative 10 to a zero, but it's more about bringing someone that's at like a two or three and bringing them up to a positive 10, gotcha. um, 10 being perfect. So, gotcha. um, so many people enter the, the world of therapy for very different reasons. In, in my opinion, it's all really valuable. And yes, there are cases where I'll meet with someone and uh, they want to see what's going on and whether or not they have tools to address it. And I'll say, yeah, you know, um, if you if this feels like a helpful space and they want to continue, fine. But in reality, I tell them that, look, you know, the reality is, you know, back to your metaphor around the teeth, like the preventative is good. You come in, we do a review, we take a 30,000 foot view of everything that's going on. Mm -hmm. I tend to break things up into different domains or different buckets you know, like, you know, how, how's the inner narrative, you know, in terms of behavior, thoughts, feelings, behavior, family, academic. And so we kind of break these things up into categories and we rate each category. So we'll scale them. And based sure. on that, nice. we then give them a determination. Now, to your question around what therapy is, I think that the easiest way to frame it um, would be... Um, there is an analogy from a person uh, that I, that whose name kind of slips my mind right now. Um, and I'm, I'm going to find it, even try to maybe look it up while we're having this conversation, but um, a map, a compass and a candle. And I, I love it. And in fact, the analogy wasn't even for therapy, but I think it, it fits therapy beautifully. So this is not okay. mine. Um, uh -huh. The map essentially allows us to understand history it gives us a blueprint. It allows us to look at our experience, see where we come, where we've come, where we are now, and where we'd like to go. Right. So, if you let's say we want to go into a mall and we're trying to get to Filene's basement, okay. All right. We get to finally. Excuse me. We walk into the mall. We look at that map. We see the "you are here" sign. All right. We look at the parking lot. Okay. We came from this parking lot. Okay. That's the history. We look at where we've already been, what we've done, how that went. We look at the you are here and the you are here is, okay, this is where we are. So we understand our frame of reference in relation to the larger picture. Right. And then uh, we want to get to filing's basement. So we have to go up to Macy's and take a right. Right. Uh -huh. So now we have an idea of where we've come, where we are now and where we're going. So the map is critical. That's one of the first things that I do in addition Love to it. developing rapport. Right. Love that. Like Love that. Safe space, create a comfortable space. I allow people to understand that I really do feel honored that someone standing in front of me bearing witness to their story is yep. the most powerful thing I could ever experience. So in addition to, and, and we'll get to that too in a minute. So the map is just kind of understanding the blueprint and painting a picture because I believe very, very firmly with literally every person I've ever worked with, if I can understand enough of their picture, then people start to make sense. Mm. And it's not that people have a picture unpainted, but in fact, oftentimes there may be a light focused on one side of the picture 
And then, you know, this part of the picture is still there. It's still present, but there's no light on that side. And, mm. and because I'm also a very firm believer that people have the tools that they need inside of them. They just yes. need someone to hold Agreed. up the mirror. Right. So my yep. job Agreed. is to hold up that mirror and allow yep. them to see the most beautiful parts of themselves. Yes. So that's the map. Now, the compass is where I come in most prominently. The compass is um, the the interventions. The compass is me using my kind of therapeutical, my therapy models and different tools and skills that I've acquired along the way that I think would be most helpful for the person that I'm working with. That's it. So that's when we get into cognitive behavioral therapy. We get into internal family systems. We get into narrative therapy. We get into what's called EMDR. We do trauma work, body-based work. And that is all the interventions, the things that happen, the things that I'm able to use my tools, that's the compass part. And then lastly is the candle, map, compass, and candle. The candle is the love. The candle is positive reinforcement. The candle Mm. is them knowing when they step into a space with Jay Carey or any therapist, hopefully, they are going to feel valued. They're going to feel seen. They're going to feel heard. And the focus is on them, right? That's one of the differences between a conversation with a really good friend and therapy. Therapy is if someone walks into my space, it's them. The focus is on them. Right. Mind you, I'll bring myself into it in relation to how it can be helpful for them, but it gives them an opportunity to unpack their experience and they yep. don't have to feel guilty about talking about them for that full hour. That's so it. The math compass and candle is a great way to frame it. Love um, that. And it really works because once we understand I've- where we're going, And then along the way, we practice all these different tools to see what's going to work for them. And then also there's always this unconditional positive regard that's happening in every single session. And Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a model of therapy that's more relational. It's called humanistic by Dr. Mm -hmm. Carl Rogers. And he speaks specifically about the nature of the relationship itself is healing. So if someone comes into Mm -hmm. my space and I'm able to just focus on the nature of our relationship, and I can build them up and empower them and give them confidence and challenge that imposter syndrome that comes mm-hmm. up with so many of my BIPOC clients, then we can get somewhere really, really far, even if it's unrelated to what happened to them. I love that. Like, I was listening to this podcast um, called Code Switch, and the topic was um, can, what was it? Can therapy heal racism? Now, I mean, the short answer to that is no, right? Interesting. We're talking about, you know, a larger systemic structure. We're talking about yes. an idea, right? So right. N- no, it not it can't. But the impact of racism can be healed in a therapeutic setting. Mm. Right? Mm. We can break through issues of imposter syndrome. We can break through issues of internalized racism. We can break through issues of um, it, it, unhealthy boundaries. We can yes. break through issues of... Uh, intergenerational trauma. So it's it, it's a lot. Um, therapy can be very complex, but it also can be very simple. It just depends on what the needs are of each individual person. You know, you, you make a, a ton of profound points. And as you close out just now, talking about therapy and racism, um, it's, it's been interesting. Last couple of years, I've met a few people and have had the pleasure of, of connecting with a few people who look at different ways to address systemic structures such as racism, yeah. um, at least the behavioral component. And a good friend of mine, Jeanette Marais, uh, season two, Chopping Block, episode one, mm-hmm. uh, she talked about um, 
she she does work in kindness and she talks about how uh, the answer to a lot of this is kindness and or empathy and if i can if i can sort of mlk it and yep. see you for the content of your character not just that though right because we recognize these systems exist and i want you to see me for my blackness uh, above pretty much most things yeah um but if i can if in doing that i can also see that you're kind with it um, then I can move beyond these elements of power and privilege that prevent me from connecting with you at the, at really the, the humanistic level. Um, and you know, you, you, you talked about healing and earlier on you, you said, you know, if we get to that later, I want you to, to double back on that a little bit more. Um, you had some powerful words, Jay, and this bio of yours that I found, right. <laughs> uh, where you sort of, uh, are positioning to the, to the reader or the ideally the potential client, you ask this question, you ask, do you find yourself saying internally that this shouldn't hurt anymore? And yeah. that was heavy. I was like, Oh no. Now I know Jay Carey and I know that he means that question sincerely. Oh, yeah. And it reminded me, it reminded me of a quote I first heard from my guy, Dr. Eric house. It was chopping block last season. New Mexico State University. Mm -hmm. He said, hurt people, hurt people. Yeah, they do. Hurt people, hurt people. And I've heard that a couple of times since, but I hadn't heard it before then. Jay, is that true? And and what does that mean to you? And does it apply to this question of uh, that you ask these clients in your particular bio? Yeah, I mean, so loaded there. And, and I love all of this. Um, because I mean, starting with your most your, your most recent mention around hurt people, hurt people. I think that it's absolutely true. Um, mm -hmm. I also think that there are occasions, depending on the response, um, where hurt people can heal people. Um, mm -hmm. Depending on the response and how we respond to the hurt, right? So it's like um, it is true that if left unchecked. Um, painful emotions are going to manifest and attract more pain. No question. Um, is that misery needs company or is that an unfair? Exactly. Okay. It's, it's like basic law of attraction. If this is the frequency that I'm on, um, as I feel the frequency, I'm going to offer it to other people. Mm -hmm. really. You get back what you put out. I love saying that. Yes. And, in, and, and if I was to quote um, Les Brown, we don't get in life what we want. We get what we are. Ah. Uh... Right. And okay. so All right. And that's why back to the, the, the point around kindness, which was wonderful. And I did catch a sneak peek of that podcast. I need to watch the whole thing now. Uh -huh. um, speaking to kindness, similar, similar idea, the similar function happens as we feel kindness. We get to share that with people as we as we demonstrate and show up in circles with kindness. We get to feel some of that ourselves. Mm -hmm. so, so sometimes kindness takes a degree of practice. And as mm. this kindness in other circles, we get to feel some too. If I'm yeah. love, loving toward my brother Sherrod, I get to feel some of that love as it comes out of me, right? That's as right. I'm so grateful for you and, and, and the things that you've been able to do with your experience, I've been able to win from your wins because I feel that gratitude for you winning, right? Mm. So gotcha. yes. nothing, nothing in the therapy space, um, we we get to practice kindness. We get to learn kindness in a therapy space because again, it's a safe space. It's a, it allows us to put our guard down 
Right. And it also allows us um, to learn about empathy. It, it teaches a ways to learn about self-compassion first. And then once we are compassionate towards self, we can love better when we learn how to love ourselves. Indeed. You know, we can offer Indeed. better when we learn how to treat ourselves like someone we love. So what does that look like for us to treat ourselves like someone we love? Because oftentimes, as you know, in terms of these systems, people that that are clear and openly, you know, angry or racist or a number of these isms, right, played out, manifested, mm -hmm. um, are often rooted in insecurity, are often rooted True. in the lack of wholeness within oneself. True. And so that then becomes a projection and I'm projecting my anger onto you because I know there's a deficit in, inside of me and I've been socialized to your earlier point in a design that's already flawed. But I don't right. know. And so I'm so accustomed to this level of privilege that all of a sudden equity then feels like oppression, right? So it's like mm. back to the design. I like back that. And so yes. wow. And, and so, you know, back to my, my question in that bio that I wrote around, you know, um suffering. When I hear yes. that question around should this shouldn't hurt anymore. Right. Pain is something we're all going to experience. It comes yes. and goes. It's, it's fleeting. It's supposed to be. Suffering is prolonged. Suffering mm. is sustained. Suffering is is ongoing and it is it, it's ever present. It's and it's the it's the profane in Buddhism. It's the it's the the antagonist. So interesting. Exactly. And so to like um to you know, I'm thinking of Limon Wa, right? Color of fear. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. The solution to the pain is in the pain. So, right. right. When we go through the, sometimes the first time through the wall, we're going to get bloody. And so mm. if we want to get on the other side of that wall, sometimes we have to do the work. And so if we confront suffering rather than avoiding it or compartmentalizing it or ignoring it or telling ourselves we're okay or trying to drink it away or smoke it away or mm -hmm. whatever it is away, if we can confront it, and 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 face it and name it and um acknowledge what's yes. behind it then we can heal that's what Which therapy is intended to be for that's what i it's like uh you know the, the first step of any addressing any problem or addiction is naming it right? acknowledging yeah. that it's there first and foremost yeah. yeah and then let's move forward and yeah. i love how you uh apply that to the work of therapy and mm -hmm. you know everything i i came into this conversation um mm -hmm. knowing therapy not fully understanding it i have a much better grasp on it now uh you know my wife's a proponent of therapy the, the kids in my house are proponents of therapy i'm a proponent of it mm -hmm. i had never experienced a session myself um and so hopefully anybody else out there who was like hmm, what's tell me a little bit more about this yeah. i think what you're dropping here today jay is some serious serious gems man and I, i'm grateful I got just a couple more questions, brother, and yeah, I'm going to yeah. send you back, give you your day back, man. Let you do your thing. I appreciate you being here with me. Um, per personally, and yeah. for other folks who might identify as such, talk to me about being a dad, man, being a black dad. Talk about fatherhood. Uh, what concerns you? And, and, and center it and race for me. What concerns you with, yeah. with little Jay? Right. Yeah. Jojo, you know, Jade is floating around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What concerns you? What brings you joy? What do you love the most? I, I, as you know, I'm, I'm a, a newish dad, two years. Yeah. Uh, and I have my own 
uh, you know, concerns about raising a black boy. I'm here in Tucson raising a black boy. Yeah. Talk to me, talk to us about fatherhood, man, being a black dad and, 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 and all of that good stuff. So being a dad, as you know, I would have to say it's the most beautiful experience I've ever had. Oh man, indeed. Right. One. Number two, it's interesting when you reference kind of centering it around race, um, especially related to kind of the challenges or some things that I may be worried about. The reason why I say that is because um, more than anything else in life, I am more worried about racism with my children than anything, oh, else, yeah. than anything else. Um, yes. And for example, c- case in point, um, you know, during the pandemic, you know, BLM got really, really, really loud, really big, profound movement, no question, very, very painful experience for yeah. a number of us, um, particularly for, for, for black and brown folks, I would have to say it was more like a very, very sad reunion. Um, right. It, it wasn't new. And, and so for a number of folks, I think, um, you know, I, I saw on social media time and time again how there was this new profound kind of uncovering and discovering um, that I also knew amongst my, my people that they were very familiar with it already. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so unfortunately, I was also quite familiar with it. And colorism is real, by the way. I am light skinned. I acknowledge that. And I know mm-hmm. that treatment changes based on skin tone. For sure. sure. I've seen sure. that time and time again, personally, and I know it just academic. I just know it's true. And yep. so um, quick story. So during the pandemic, it's 2020 and, you know, the protests are, are heavy. Um, I haven't yet taken my, my son to one of the protests. Uh, my daughter was involved in them in Albany. My niece was involved in them in Albany. I hadn't yet been outside like that. I mean, not heavy. And because it was still relatively early on and um, because I had a young kid and it was still pandemic and my, my youngest had, you know, pulmonary issues, I didn't, I didn't engage myself much in, in crowds early on. But sure. one day uh, we're driving home and we're driving past a protest and there is a woman walking down the street, a white woman with a, with a street, a very large street sign that says, stop killing black people. My son's nine years old and he looks mm-hmm. through the back window. And he reads the sign and he says, dad, that sign didn't just say stop killing black people, did it? And, and it was just, it was like, there was mm. this pause in my mind. I was like, not honestly, the first reaction was I'm not ready. Right. I'm right. not ready for him to have an encounter no. um, because we want to protect our kids. So it's yep. never going to be comfortable. It's always important when it happens, but you know, it's not something that we want. We don't want to rush uh, the, the reality of racism. You know, yes. Right. So he read the sign. Pause. I had to think of how I was going to collect my words. His mother looked at me <laughs> and, and I said, Jay. So here's the deal. I said, as you know, there are a lot of good people in this world. Um, and there's also a lot of people that are lost. There's a lot of people that are hurt. There's a lot of people that are broken. And, and sometimes that causes them to look like really bad people. And I'm not sure if there's bad people or not yet, but I know there's a lot of broken ones. Mm. And I said, m- most recently, there were there was an incident, um, you know, that happened um, where a black man was hurt really, really bad, and they it was recorded, um, and people saw it. And in response to that, there's a number of people that 
that choose not to tolerate that. And so now there is a movement where people are starting to get up and get out um, and have these discussions. I'm guessing that by the probably my third or fourth word in that entire statement, he already melted down. He couldn't mm. even hear me. Tears are flowing. He's hysterical, quiet, hysterically crying. I'm, you know, trying to hold in emotions right now. Right. And so um, we then had to have a larger conversation and it was continual. And then, you know, we, we manifested that into a place of agency. And so we made signs. You know, he created his own side with a picture. I made my sign. We went out to some protests and we, we did some work. Right. Nice. And so um, it was a cool opportunity for him to exercise agency. Um, but the pain that he had to experience, it, it was it, I mean, it's exceptional. I can't even explain what it did to me no. as, as a dad. So if right. I was afraid or had a concern, it would be racism over anything. Yep. Because it's so systemic and it's so rooted and there are so many broken people out yes. in the world still um, yes. that I'm afraid. I'm, I'm afraid. I still have issues, you know, around, you know, kind of, you know, the way in which, you know, policing emerged historically um, mm -hmm. and how the structures that be um, continue to manifest some really, really dangerous narrative. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and. I also, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to, to feel too radical or extreme, but the reality is um, the, the, the narrative of hate, the narrative of um, discrimination and police brutality, it, it's an extreme narrative. Mm. I don't know how else to say it. And so uh, as a dad, as a black dad, raising black kids, um, you know, they're, the way in which they show up in the world is a constant concern for me, not in terms of how they're showing up, but in terms of how they're being received. Yes. It's scary. It's terrifying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And, and super profound as always, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm both sorry that little Jay had to go through that. And also, um, what, what other word I want to use also appreciative maybe that, Though it happened, it happened early yeah. enough that he and he was able to understand it, so that he is now has the tools yeah. necessary to be able to understand what's happening next. And you handled that in ways I don't know if I I know anybody else who could have done it that way, including myself. So that was, um, you know, the, you are the, the the standard bearer, man. That working on the fly in that way. And I mean, that is, you know, and and and, and life is not going to provide you with a strategic plan. A lot of times it's, Oh, here you go. Let's yeah. figure this out. Figure um, out. And you got, you got the youngins that are looking, looking for you to do so. Um, Jay, man, look, this is, this is my last question. I want to throw to you. I want you to have the opportunity to, to talk about those who influenced you. But I also have to say, man, you've always been a mentor to me. As I said, in the very beginning, mentor, friend, brother, the whole nine. And I, I tell people this, and, and side conversations, but like you always, I always said that you taught me sort of how to, how to, how to talk, how to navigate predominantly white spaces. Um, you know, I, I remember the cafeteria scenario. Uh, I feel like we've talked about this before where, you know, we were, you, me, and a few others were chopping it up, cold switching, yes. living our life. And a, a white guy came by, tapped you and you were like, 
hey, <laughs> and, you know, engage the convo. And, you know, I, I watched it and you learn that a lot of this is somewhat of a game to an extent. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, I remember us having the men of color initiatives or the meetings. And mm-hmm. I remember we were sitting there. I'll never forget it, man. Mm-hmm. We were sitting there talking about uh, experiences with, with police and how we are expected to behave and how we have to behave. And that's when we first started talking about uh, sort of blackness and, and this, the game as yeah. a life skill, not as a topic of conversation. And I remember a white dude walked in and the language shifted from these white cops who were racist to, you know, European men who have a oppressive tendencies. Like we weren't, we weren't willing to name it. We weren't comfortable right. because of the presence of one white face. And yeah. sort of you taught me how to remain true to yourself and while still being in these spaces, not losing who you are. Um, and, and I remember your speech at graduation. For those who don't know, Jay Carey was a commencement speaker, one of those two master degrees years. And that motivated me, man, to, to I said, I want to do that. Here's Jay. There's a lot of things. I'm going to take the soapbox for a moment. I know this is Jay's show, but I, I want to make sure he gets his respect and his due. You know, I, I remember being in the stands and and watching Jay, who I had known for going on a year at this point. I think this was your master's of social work here. Yeah. And uh, you gave this speech that was awesome by definition. It was huge. It was like jaw-dropping. And I'm like, here's this dude who I admire, who's a brother, who's not afraid to be himself, who, who you know, cast no Jay. They know Jay. They know the man. He's not out here playing games for people, but he's also like the commencement speaker. I just saw so much power and so much influence in that, that I was like, I want to, I want that. And I watched how you moved ever since then. I was fortunate enough to, to be that guy the next year and then uh, for the commencement speak. Uh, no, I listen, I, I was just, I was just watching, man. And I was like, this, this guy, Jay, is it? I remember seeing you show up one day to, uh, <laughs> this is the funniest one for me. Mm. You showed up to a, like a, uh, it was a larger, uh, meeting for the campus leaders or something like that. Everybody's there in their business gear and you show up with a Kango hat, t-shirt, some blue jeans and some, some Tim's yeah. at this, <laughs> at this formal meeting. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, that's when you know you made it, man. But you can show up that and still command the same kind of respect that would be expected if you were in a certain tie. But the last thing I want to, I want to name is that the one thing you showed me more than anybody else, any other man in my life is you showed me how to be vulnerable as a man. Right. And there's no surprise that we're talking about therapy and such in the conversation. And like, I've heard you say multiple times to, to older men, love you say it to me all the time, you know, showing love to you was like a, a competition who, who can get the last one in, you know what I mean? So you're always uplifting somebody. And then the way that you treat your kids and, you know, I remember being at your house one day and your son had to, I feel like little Jay had to brush his teeth and you're like, you know, time to brush your teeth. And he's like, oh, I want to walk off. And you called him back like, hey, he came back. You're like, I love you. And that was it. His entire night shifted. He wasn't upset about brushing teeth anymore. He went and was looking forward to brush your teeth. But it's those little things that I never got, but we never really said that in my house or anything like that, that really I translate into my own parenting, into my own relationships with black men and with men in general and how to be vulnerable and how to be open about that. So I wanted to, to, 
to show you love, but also pass it back to you and ask you. Yep. You mentioned Lee earlier, but who are some of your inspirations, some of your motivations, some of the folks who you serve, served as mentors for you coming up or throughout your journey that maybe you might want to shout out and, and can, can speak to the man you are today? Well, so I appreciate that so much. And we all reflect each other's light. I'd have to, I'm not, there's, I'm not going to go anywhere until I leave with, you know, with, without giving you your love right back. Oh, no, come on, man. That's not what this is about here. <laughs> Offered a speech and I wrote it and read it and and memorized it and still read it and read it. I mean, I must have read that speech five hundred times. I spent an hour every single night for a month in the garage. You what you did perfected the orator experience. You perfected public speaking. So like what whatever I offered to you. Thank you for that. And and in truth, I don't even. I, don't, I definitely don't remember it that way. All of it. Um. But I have to say that what you did the year after put mine not even not even to shame because it had there's no comparative at all. I was oh, so honored for you to go that next year and bring what what I was able to do to a level that I could never even imagine. Oh, like, I've no. never done a speech <laughs> without a script, never in my life. Um, and not even that. <laughs> The way in which you captured the audience, you started off from a place of recognition. You played gratitude. You pulled your family into the experience. You also spoke truth to power and spoke to some very, very in-depth um, kind of, you know, history lessons through the mm. lens of your family story. And, that, and it, was, it was so beautiful. It was so transcendent. I was like, Sam State's never seen this before. <laughs> I wanted to run up on stage and drop the mic for you. I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's it. We, 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 we shouldn't even be calling names of graduates anymore. That's it. Um, so you ripped it. It's also interesting to hear that I love, you know, what you referenced around, you know, us and vulnerability, but then also yeah. like um, having a language around certain things. You're the, one of the most articulate people that I've ever met in my life. And I, I learned from you every single time that we meet. So much so that I would go on a limb and say, that's why it's taken me so long to get on the top <laughs> was because I was, and I want to go on record saying I was oh. really intimidated because I'm so humbled <laughs> by your greatness. And I'm so honored just to know you as a human. It, it literally, it makes my moment. Every time I hear anything, Sherrod Robbins, it's like, what? A, yes. <laughs> and in truth, to be completely honest, if you would have asked me directly, I wouldn't have said no to you. <laughs> I was afraid to say yes, but if you would have been like, "Yo, Jay, I need you on this," I would have been like, "All right, fine." And I would have. <laughs> so now, separate to that, um, first and foremost, I have to give praise to my father, uh, Frank Anastasio. Raised mm. me from 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 nothing into something. Um, mind of an engineer, heart of a warrior, strongest man I've ever met. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't have made it anywhere. So mm. giving him flowers, he's 76 years old, and I'm going to make sure that I send this to him anyway, just to give a shout out. So thank you for that. Um, like you mentioned, Dr. Libreswat, absolutely. My big brother, Sean Newton, absolutely. Oh, yes. Who well, I got to get a Sean if you're listening. Right. I'm, like I'm Sean, coming for you soon on this, too. Good. Because he is a trendsetter, and without Sean paving his way, I wouldn't have been able to run behind him because he, right. he's able to create. He created a, a pathway for me that I just wouldn't have had, straight up. Right. Yes. Um, um, all the whole Lane family, I got a shout out. Um, all of them, man. All 30,000. <laughs> and I have to say, like, in terms of big brother, father figure, David Lane, David Jordan Lane, 
uh, yep. also raised me on the street. Um, and he protected me and he looked out for me and he pulled me into the Lane family in really, really beautiful ways. I also would not be where I am. Shout out to Mama Lane, Mama Donna yes, Lane. Indeed. I would not be who I am without Mama Lane. I would not be oh. who I am without David Jordan Lane. Uh, Donnell and Damien, my brothers forever. Freddie, yes. everybody. Donna, Delilah, Carlotta, everybody. So hey, shout out oh, to <laughs> All 3,000, like I said. Right. Um, right. So, so man, my big brother, Ree, I mean, you know, and, and I'm calling on men in particular, um, yeah. just kind of keeping with the theme and the context, but also so many, you know, so many beautiful women in my life uh, as well. You know, my, my big sister definitely helped pave the way. Yeah, um, man. Yeah, my mom's is, is my guardian angel on earth, you know, so I just, I've been super blessed. Um, and this has been a journey and I still feel like we're at the beginning of it, you know, right. so. Yes. Uh, moving forward, if there's anything you ever need from me, please don't hesitate to just ask, and I got you. My man. And ask directly, because if you make it gentle, I might, I might default <laughs> my syndrome and say no. Um, but well, I you know it. You, I'm one phone call away. You call me, and I'm coming. It's gonna take me a while to drive out there, but I'm going. I'm on my way. So hey, hey, listen, man, you made it out to the wedding a couple of years yes. back, which yes. we weren't sure was gonna happen because you just That's had it. your daughter, but. You know, you had every reason not to come. You made uh, it to that. You were at my it. dissertation defense yes. while on vacation. Yeah, man, you don't got to convince me. Just know that yeah. uh, whenever we're back in Boston, we might be there next summer. I mean, next Please. next spring. You know, the, the 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 carry household is is the first stop we do every Door's year. Already so. open. Door's I already appreciate open. you. Yeah, you already know. Let you go, Jay. Uh, yeah. Where can people find you, man? Social media handles, websites, yeah. emails, anything that makes sense. So, good question. So, um. My Instagram, I just learned, I believe, is a handle. It's, that's the at address, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Yo, technology's not my thing. As you can see, as you can the see. handle. <laughs> uh, I think it's it's Tony Humble three sixty is my Instagram mm -hmm. address, aka. Okay. Handle. Yes, I'm getting yes. this. <laughs> handle. Yeah. Um, my my, you say email. If you want anything that anywhere people can reach you, so anywhere people can reach me. So I'm on Psychology Today. Okay, it's just Jay okay. Carey. Um. I'm based out of Swampscott, Massachusetts. So if you put in Jay Carey, Massachusetts, I'm going to come up. Psychologytoday.com. I'm also nice. on um, InnoPsych, um, I-N-N-O-P-S-Y-C-H.com, uh, I, I believe it is. Um, InnoPsych is a therapy platform for black and brown therapists. Probably good for people to know anyway. Um, mm -hmm. InnoPsych, just the same. I'm on that as well. So Jay Carey, Massachusetts, I'll pop up. Um, and of course, you know, if, if that's not enough, you know, people can find me if they reach out to the legendary Dr. Sherrod Roberts. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can be found right now. Things are extraordinarily busy, but I will absolutely entertain any love or any resourcing that I can offer for people. So I love it, man. Yo, yo, brother Jay, yo, listen, man. Thank you, bro. Uh, you know what I'm saying? The, the, the whole intent today was to be as informal as possible because you're my guy. But also the topic was critically important and it, 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 it can't be had eloquently or effectively with, with any real structure. So I appreciate you flowing with me. Appreciate your vulnerability for you teaching me, schooling me, you know, taking me in many ways from the young cat who came from, you know, uh, who, who entered in the 3X white tee with the Jabot jeans, you know, and left with that. But also an understanding of, of how this game works. You know what I'm saying? So. 
Jay, I appreciate you, baby. My job was to hold you up and, and get out the way. And that's, and, and if I even had a role at all, and that's what I've done, I've been able to get out of your way and stay in your corner. So you always know that you got a back oh, if you need it. You know what I'm saying? So always love my best always to you and the family and anything I can ever do. You let me know. Likewise, baby. And Word. for y'all listening, thank you all so much. My man, Jay Carey, Dr. Sherrod Robinson, you're with the chopping block at visualchange.org. Oh.